The Canucks' playoff chances take a big hit with the trade deadline looming. It is the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. That was good. Your that home was a of good the Canucks. Intro. I'm like you, excited Ed, for the show Thank now. you. Not that I wasn't before, but I'm really <laughs> excited now. Well, I'm glad I yeah, perked you your interest. You hooked me. You hooked I'm glad me. I perked Let's your go. interest there. Uh, Canucks Hour brought to you by Sounds Avenue Machinery. Stakes. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit AvenueMachinery.ca. I'm Jamie Dodd. That other voice, of course, is an excited, a ready-to-go Thomas Drance, Canucks insider, who also covers the team for The Athletic. Yeah, Drance, our trade deadline's back on. We're going to have something to talk about on Monday, right? I mean, (laughs) we'll have Brandon Hagel to talk about. Uh Uh-huh. Brandon Hagel goes for two firsts. There's a lot to unpack here. Two young roster players as well. Do we want to start talking about with Brandon Hagel? Well, where do we 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 want to go? Let, let's start with the Canucks. Let's start with last let's, night. Let's start with last night and build out from that. And by the way, 650, 650 uh, is the Dumber Lumber text line. So get your thoughts in about the game last night, the trade deadline, anything that's on your mind. And I mean, like, there's no other way to get around it. That was that was tough stuff in a vitally important game from the Canucks and a one nothing loss to Detroit. I, I don't want to be overly dramatic about it, uh, but I thought it was a really poor effort. That's the worst part about it for me, honestly. I like a one nothing loss when you're on a shooting percentage bender. Like sometimes that can just happen to you, and it has nothing to do with how you played. I don't think the Canucks generated enough. I don't think they controlled play well enough, and I think they surrendered far too much. I mean, they gave up 18 shots in the first period, 35 overall, to a Detroit Red Wings team that was missing their top scoring winger due to COVID protocols, of course. Tyler Bertuzzi, mm-hmm. the one unvaccinated player in the NHL. They were missing Nick Letty because they held him out. So they had Jordan Osterley on their top pair. They had Ole Olevi in their top four. And they had Mark Stahl playing major minutes. And he looked washed. And the Canucks, honestly, like, they had the Garland breakaway, which I think shouldn't have happened. They should have, been blo- they should have blown the play dead about 20 seconds earlier when Nick Patan got sort of roughed up behind the play. I thought it was preposterous that everything was still happening, but it led to a ton of exciting hockey. So yes, I guess it I'm, really did. I'm really not too upset about it, but I was just like wondering what was going on. A tough night for the refs. They got hit by the puck a few times, fell down. The audience cheering when the ref fell down was my favorite moment. That's a classic moment. A classic so moment good. in any game that it Loved happens. it. Loved everything about that. Um, the Canucks get three straight power plays. Do nothing on them, right? Honestly, didn't really even threaten. Nedeljkovic was good, but Demko was way better. The Red Wings had the balance of quality chances. Um, I just thought it was a bad effort. Like, I, I, I wish I didn't have to say that. I wish I could be like, the Canucks got unlucky. This stuff happens. It's too bad that they have no margin for error because that was the type of effort that should win you a game nine times out of ten. That was the type of effort that loses you a game seven times out of ten. Like, they were bad. They were bad against a very, very bad team. And at this time of year, considering the stakes, you know, I, I mean, I don't think the Canucks should be looking to this weekend as any barometer of where they're at. They need to know who they are already. And if they don't, they're in way more trouble than than, than just a 17% yes. bid of the playoffs. They're in trouble durably for years. But, you know, like... That is the sort of game where if you're Patrick Alvin watching live or Jim Rutherford watching from home in COVID protocol, like how can you how can you look at that team and be like, we're we're really gonna we're really gonna go in on this? You know how can, how can you not? I mean that's human nature. Well, I mean you you have to be thinking about it, particularly because you've got this Calgary game, this Buffalo game, back to back at home this weekend. Then you go out on the road. 
And we all know what that looks like, right? We all know. Colorado, Minnesota, back-to-back. Dallas, St. Louis, home to St. Louis and Vegas, and then on the road to Vegas again. Okay? So there you go. If you choose wrong, right? If you choose wrong, if you're like, we're going to believe in this team, there is a non-zero chance that by the end of this month, right, within 10 days, you are out of the playoffs, no question about it, and people wonder why you didn't sell. Right? Like, that's the risk you're taking. At This weekend is about sort of figuring out, like, can we make it? Can we make it? Are we actually close enough that we're going to not sell Tyler Mott here? That we're not going to monetize Tyler Mott? That we're going to keep the same group? It's not an easy decision, and I don't think there's a right or a wrong answer necessarily, particularly because Vancouver's biggest ticket items all have, all have team control that extends beyond this year, but... The idea that you'd wait and see based on the outcomes of this of this weekend's games. That is the sort of that is the sort of thing that makes me very nervous for what could come down the pike from an organization that has made dramatic changes behind the bench and we've enjoyed the fruits of that. They've made dramatic changes in the front office and I, I think they've brought in some really sharp people, a, a really interesting executive team. But you know, the time has come to see if they can put their stamp on a new direction for this franchise that works in my view. And if we're at more of the same wait till the last minute, think short term, I mean, that's, you know, different people, same job. We didn't hear obviously from Jim Rutherford or Patrick Alvin what they thought of that performance last night, but we did hear from Bruce Boudreau, right? And he was pretty sharp in, in evaluating his team's performance. Like he used the word arrogant to describe how they approached that game. That's that's not mincing words from Bruce Boudreau. He said he thought their first period was one of their worst first periods, and they've had some stinkers, especially recently with Bruce Boudreau behind the bench. And I do think that's really fascinating because even in this stretch where they've won a lot of games, when they have lost games, Boudreaux has not been shy about being pretty blunt and being pretty frank with the short about the shortcomings of his team, right? Like, this is not a situation where he's coming out and saying, hey, you know what, we just didn't get the breaks in that game, but, you know, I have full faith that we'll get back at it and we'll get two points in the next one, right? Like, he has... He has used these opportunities. Just think back to the Tampa Bay Lightning game and how dejected he sounded about another slow start for his team, and certainly... That continued last night. You heard that frustration from Boudreaux. So I think that is, again, it's it's not the front office. It's just the just it's the coach, the head coach, whose, whose views obviously are very important. If that is a window into what the rest of the organization is thinking, I think it's maybe a sign that they do recognize the flaws of this team and the structural issues of this team that Boudreaux, to his credit, has done a very good job of masking. Uh, since he's taken over behind the bench. But just looking at that game, as you said, they gave up way too many grade-A opportunities. You know, it it goes in the books as a one nothing loss. It felt more like it could have been like a, a 5-3 loss a or something or like that. I agree yeah. with that. I, except, except I don't know that the Canucks really deserve three, right? Like 5-2 for me. Sure. Uh, they, they just didn't generate enough quality at the end of the day. But it was an extremely high-event, sloppy game. And, you know, I said on the show yesterday... Beyond it just being a vital two points in the standings, you also just wanted them to go out and impose their will and run the show against a much less talented team. And not only did they not get the two points, but they really let Detroit play the type of game Detroit wanted to play, right? It was up and down. It was wide open. It was sloppy. That's not exact. That's not at all what the Canucks uh, would have wanted going into that game against a speedy team like the Detroit Red Wings. So they kind of failed both tests. They didn't get the two points and they didn't even put up a good effort. Uh, or show that they were kind of 
you know, able to dominate a team like Detroit in the process. And I, I do think, you know, we've gotten the question a lot, Drancer, since Boudreaux's taken over and the team has gone on this run. Like, well, okay, you, you guys say there's still these flaws in the makeup of the team. What are they? And I thought the deficiencies on the back end really showed up last night. Because oh, no question. Anytime, if, if, if a defenseman got chased. If a defenseman other than Quinn Hughes had the puck on their stick in their own end, it was trouble. Like it was trouble. They they could not get out of their own zone cleanly with a few Quinn Hughes driven exceptions all night. And as you said, the OEL Tyler Myers pairing, which has been very steady and a very rock. effective, yeah, stalwart for the Canucks, it got broken up because yeah. and frankly, OEL was had a very poor night last night. So you completely understand why Boudreaux broke it up. In the first period, the Canucks surrendered one and a half scoring, uh, sorry, one and a half expected goals, right? No actual goals, but one and a half expected goals at five on five. 1.1 of that 1.5 came with OEL and Myers on the ice. It was 10 shots for the Detroit Red Wings, 10 shots in six minutes and 40 seconds for two for Vancouver. That's turnstile city, right? Like that's, that's, you know, a problem. (laughs) <laughs> put another quarter in the pinball machine because the ball has gone between your 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 two flippers uh, multiple times. So, yeah, I mean, OEL's declining usage on the PK, what we're seeing from him in terms of mobility, right? He's had a really good year for me. But there's probably something he's battling at this stage of the season, considering how many minutes he's played, considering how hard those minutes have been, how many shots he's eaten, how many hits he's thrown, how many cross-checks he's taken. And this is year one, right? Like, this is year one. There's five more years after this. And already, you know, you're you're beginning to see sort of how difficult it can be to last in the NHL playing those types of minutes, that type of role, that th- those types of, you know, it's the, one of the hardest jobs in the league. I, I I don't have a lot of hope for that pairing jumping back unless Ekman Larson begins to look more like the player we saw earlier in the year. And and I want to be clear that I am dividing performance from what I see right now watching Ekman Larson. I don't know this this, but the data, the usage, it all points to me to be a uh, you know a fitness issue. Not and I don't mean like no, a, not, like, not, not a cardio, not an no. Ole Olevi fitness issue, like a. Like a <laughs> genuine, like, you know, I don't think he's Physical. 100%. Yeah. I don't even think he's close to 100%. And as such, I'm not I'm not going to be criticizing his performance. My bet is this is true warrior stuff we're seeing out there from Ekman Larson, that the guys in the room are seeing it and are pretty impressed. Um, but, but we don't have a feel for that. We're not going to have a feel for that until he's not playing games. And so, uh, you know, with, with context... With that context considered, like I don't have a lot of hope for OEL and and Myers pair just sort of bouncing back to the form that they were in for thirty games, and that form was essential, yes. right? Like that was an essential part of what made this Boudreaux era successful in the outset. If that foundation is compromised, this team's in a lot of trouble. Uh, this text comes in echoing what you're saying. OEL looks like he's playing hurt. Absolutely. And that's 100% fair to mention and bring up. The only thing I'll I don't say, know it. I don't know. No, it, we don't know for sure. But yeah. it's, as you said, there's a lot of 
uh, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence pointing in that direction, right? He just not he just doesn't look like the player, the very very effective player that he was earlier this season. Now the thing about that is, first of all, full credit to OEL for battling through it and trying to do everything he can to help his team. But as we look going forward, not just for the remainder of the season, which as you said, you can't necessarily just expect a bounce back and a turnaround over the final 20 games from OEL if he is playing hurt, but also on the remaining five years of his deal. When you're a defenseman who plays the type of minutes that OEL does, who's played the number of games and minutes in his NHL career that he has and shouldered a big load, guess what? You're going to get banged up, right? So the banged up OEL experience is going to be a part of the Canucks' future for as long as he's on the roster. And again, that's very worrisome, right? Like that That's the reason why... The, that sort of commitment is so dangerous and, and and gives teams so much so much worry because him getting banged up is just part of the experience. It's baked in to that contract. Durability is a skill that doesn't improve with age. Is is sort of the watchword there. Now, the defense in general, though, right? I think Brad Hunt continues to play really well. Quinn Hughes, we all know, has played really well. Um, Luke Shen and Travis Hamonic are holding up. They're holding up, and you know, credit to them, right? Because they're, I think, they're doing more or less what you what you'd need. Uh, the fact that Shen is the best fit in the top four, I think, poses a pretty significant question to anyone who wants to argue that this roster is not nearly as poorly constructed as it's been made out to be. Um, but you know, uh, short of that, like, the fact is, is we all know there's not enough speed back there. There's not enough puck moving ability. Everyone knows that. So the Canucks need their forecheck to be going. If it's going to feed their offense, didn't really work last night. The Red Wings were getting through it far too easily. We kind of thought that might happen just based on the speed that they have back there. Um, I bet that the Canucks forecheck looks an awful lot more imposing against Calgary. And then we'll see against Buffalo because that's another team that can that can beat the Canucks forecheck. And then, and then you go on the road and we'll see if Miro Haskinen's in the lineup in Dallas. But aside from that, those other teams, they're all going to beat the Canucks forecheck. Maybe not every time, but sufficiently enough that they're going to get some of the same same types of rush chances that the Red Wings were able to feast on last night, even if they couldn't actually eat because Thatcher Demko was, you know, stealing all the cutlery <laughs> at mealtime. But, yeah, I mean, you need a plan B. The, the Canucks right now are so reliant on their forecheck, and it's, and it's derived almost entirely from their inability to get going vertically from the back end and you know that is that is a personnel issue Boudreaux has adopted a system that I think has very successfully succeeded in spite of that right there's no clean breakouts right there you just push the battle into the neutral zone um the four check feeds the offense right like they've done all of these smart things to hide their inability to get the puck moving from the back end and yet when you don't have that connectivity in your game it shows, especially if your forecheck gets beat with any regularity and the Red Wings manage it. Well, and night. team speed from the opponent hits them in two ways, right? Because one, it puts so much pressure on their back end and they're not able to get clean control of the puck. Even to do that, you know, the the punt and hunt, as you call it, right? Out to the mm-hmm. neutral zone. That's even a struggle. And then it prevents them from getting their forecheck going, right? So it's a really tough matchup for them in two ways. But as you said, good teams can adjust to different styles of opponents. Good teams can impose their will and make the game happen how they want it to be against a less talented opponent uh, like the Red Wings were last night. We got lots of texts coming in thinking, uh, you know, venting, I should say, about that game. Kyle from the Island says, It was frustrating watching the Canucks' effort last night. 
outright embarrassing that they didn't show up to a game that had so much weight to it. Their effort was something I would expect from a team that wasn't in a playoff race. And again, they're the team that had stakes in that game last night. They're the team that had a reason and an incentive to really want those two points. And as Kyle from the Island says, they got a better effort. They saw a better effort from the Detroit Red Wings. Now, looking at the the playoff chase as it stands for the Canucks right now, uh, the out-of-town scoreboard, very, very rough, very rough for the Vancouver Canucks last night. Vegas, Dallas, Edmonton, L.A., all win. Yes, the Nashville Predators lose in regulation, but they're pretty well clear of the Canucks anyways. So, Seven points with a game yeah, in hand? So Come on. We if, have to, if that's what you're holding on scratch to. Scratch the Predators off of yeah. your, of your, of your out-of-town scoreboard watching list. I mean, I would even almost and, and not by the way, by the LA way, in there as well. I'm but. only including Nashville because now that I've said it, they'll reel them in. <laughs> that's what I've learned. <laughs> you're doing the jinx there. Yeah. But yeah, Vegas, the key ones are Vegas, Dallas, and Edmonton all win. Canucks lose. And Winnipeg. Yeah, Winnipeg wins as well. Don't ignore Winnipeg, man. Winnipeg's Winnipeg's ahead of them. Winnipeg has a better point percentage. Like, you know, you can't ignore Winnipeg either. And then you start looking ahead. And you obviously, can ignore Anaheim, though. Yes. <laughs> Feel free to ignore Anaheim. Uh, well, especially we'll see what they do between now and Monday. But the, the sell-off is on in, in Anaheim. But, okay, so you look at it now. They have 20 games remaining. Realistically, to give yourself a shot, you need 28 points from those 20 games. And just doing the basic math, with e- which even I can handle, that means you can only lose max six times in regulation in those 20 games. Okay, so you're looking at, like, baseline 14 and 6 is what you're aiming and, for. And even that gives you 95-ish yeah. points. 95 points, yeah. Which isn't a guarantee. No, as I said, to, give yourself, to especially, give yourself a chance. Yeah, especially because the Canucks don't hold the tiebreaker over anyone but Dallas. And speaking from personal experience... Like I, I was, that can, that I worked, come into play. I worked for a team that missed with ninety six points, so ninety five ain't a guarantee. The other thing, though, is they have of those twenty games, fourteen against teams currently in a playoff spot, right? And it's Calgary on Saturday, Colorado, Minnesota, Dallas, St. Louis. Those three against Vegas, Edmonton on the final day of the, day of the season. Good teams, teams that are hard to beat. So fourteen games against playoff teams. That means at a bare minimum. They have to go 8-6 and six in those games. And that's assuming they take care of business against the Ottawas and the Seattles and the Arizonas of the world that they have in the schedule as well, which, as we've seen, not a guarantee with this team, right? Like, otherwise they would have taken care of business against the Red Wings last not night. Not a guarantee for anybody. I mean, I mean, Arizona, Arizona's almost better the better you are. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> you know, it's crazy. So even if you Excuse manage me, to go 8-6, yes, there you go. Even if you manage to go... Eight and six in those really tough games against really tough teams, you still have zero margin for error in those other six games. Like that is an incredibly, incredibly tall task that is facing them right now. Well, and that's what you need to weigh here, right? I mean, Dom Lecision's model has the Canucks at seventeen percent to make the playoffs now, right? Uh, uh, they were twenty-seven yesterday. They're at seventeen percent today. They are forty-one percent likely to finish fifth in the Pacific, according to Dom's model. So. They are more than twice as likely to finish fifth in the Pacific than they are to make the playoffs. And you don't get to go on that road trip and then make a decision on whether or not to monetize some players or clear out cap space before the deadline or lock in that cap savings for next year or decide if it's possible to move a lock. That comes sooner. And this is what management has to navigate and potentially sell to ownership is, you know, what is the balance of probability here, right? I'm not saying you should give up on the playoffs, but I do think you need to break the cycle of bleeding value, 
out of the organization in unrestricted free agency. I do think you need to change that approach. This team is too barren. There is not enough asset capital, period. Not enough prospects. Not enough cap flexibility. Not enough prospects. Uh, Sorry, I already said that. Draft picks. You need to go about mining value in everything you do with some discipline for a period of years. And that doesn't mean pulling the plug on this season. You know, selling Tyler Mott is going to hurt because he's by far your best penalty killer. In fact, the other penalty killers on this team sometimes don't look like they're playing the same sport. Uh, I think it's fair to say that if he's not the driver on that third line, which might be Vancouver's best single forward line, he's at least co-pilot with Matthew Highmore. And I would probably lean Mott in terms of the driver. You need Tyler Mott probably to make the playoffs, but it's far more important that you make decisions with the long view in mind and with the balance of probabilities first and foremost. Like, calculate your pot odds. Calculate your pot odds. And, you know, don't... This is this probably isn't the hand to go all in on. You know, like, if that... Think about the game you saw last night as the turn card. You know? And the Canucks are chasing here. The Canucks are chasing very much. And it's not that they have a 2-7, but, but they certainly have a low pair. Right? They certainly do not have their top pair on. It could come up. It could come up. But the wiser course of action here is to fold. The wiser course of action, even though they're so pot committed into this season, is to fold and live to fight short stack for a couple of years and try to get back in the game. Like, that's that's where they're at right now. And I think it's clear. I actually don't think it's that debatable. Um, if you're going to keep Mott, if you're committed to keeping Mott, then for me that commitment begins by hammering out an extension in the next 48 hours and talks have been quiet between his camp and the Canucks of late although both sides kind of know what it would take to get it done you have to have that extension in hand you have to have that extension in hand before noon on Monday and if you do that's fine so long as you're committed to finding creative ways to open up cap space in the summer because you don't have the money to commit two and a half to Mott unless you're also going to move a defenseman who makes three million or two and a half million and move a forward who makes two and two point six five and maybe even buy them out or trade one of your really good players who makes five ish million, right? Like you need a plan to fit Mott onto your books. And I'm okay with doing that because Mott brings a lot of what you want, I think, if you're trying to build the type of organization that I think this club wants to build. But one way or the other, the Canucks are not in a position to own rental Mott. You trade him, you extend him one or the other it is not that complicated and the idea that that, that the results of two games like oh they beat Dustin Tokarski they're back in it stop stop that's not how winning organizations function and we got a little taste of how winning organizations function with Tampa Bay paying a haul Mm -hmm. for Brandon Hagel Um, and we'll discuss that a little more on the other side of the break of course because because we're running you know but but you have to have some vision. You have to have some vision here. You have to have some vision and self-awareness and understand where you are. And two more games against Calgary and Buffalo are not going to tell you anything additionally that you shouldn't know already about where this club is at and what should come next. I, we'll talk more about the Brandon Hagel deal, some of the other trade chatter around the league, the latest reports from Elliot Friedman today uh, about some Canucks rumors as well. That's all coming up after the break. I, I will just say on Tyler Mott, 
extremely effective player, extremely useful. There's a reason that we've heard that smart teams, contending teams around the league, have been interested in him. In him. Having said that, if losing Tyler Mott, not having Tyler Mott in your lineup for the final 20 games of the season is the difference between you having a shot and not having a shot at the playoffs... That tells you that your team needs to get a lot better. Like, that's a signal that you need to have a lot more depth, right? Because you look at legitimate contending teams. Yes, they want to add Tyler Mott for the Stanley Cup playoff run. But if Colorado or Tampa or Florida or, you know, even go down to tier, Boston, St. Louis, if they lost a player like Tyler Mott for 20 games, they're, they're fine. They're making the playoffs, right? Like, that's not the margin of error that they're talking about. So if that is the margin of error for your team... That's a sign, and it's no disrespect whatsoever to Tyler Mott. Very good player. Lots of teams would want him on their team for a reason. But again, if that's the kind of crucial difference between you having a realistic shot at the playoffs and not, then your team has much bigger issues that you need to address before you worry about keeping Tyler Mott for the final 20 games of the the, season. Then the problem isn't that that you'd wish someone would turn on the air conditioning. The problem is that your house is on fire. (laughs) Like, that's, that's the problem. Uh, Canucks Hour here, Sportsnet 650. Lots more trade deadline to get into trade deadline chatter involving the Canucks and the rest of the league as well. Get your thoughts and questions in. 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Lots more coming up on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Hour here on your home of the Canucks Sportsnet 650. Final segment before the weekend. Final segment before the NHL trade deadline day on Monday. And of course, you're going to hear extended local coverage here on Sportsnet 650 on Monday. Halford and Bruff doing an extra hour from 6 a.m. till 10 a.m. Drancer and myself from 10 to 1, three hours Yannick Hansen will join us for a full hour from 11 till noon. Satyar Shah will drop by afternoon as well for a little bit of a round table. We'll have you covered on everything that goes down with the Canucks at the deadline. The People Show with Bick and Randeep uh, in their normal time spot. Expect time spot. Expect to hear uh, from the Canucks brass, media availabilities, any new players that might join the team in that slot. And then you'll also hear uh, exclusive interviews with Canucks executives on Canucks Central with Riccio and Satyar Shaw. So full day of extended local deadline coverage coming up on Sportsnet 650 on Monday. Uh, this one came in early in the show. Sean from Waterloo. Can you guys get lo- let Rutherford and Co. know that I took Monday off to follow the deadline? So please hold off trades until deadline day. Yeah, I, I feel the same way, Sean I appreciate. I yeah. appreciate that you took the day <laughs> <Yeah>. off. <laughs> Make some pancakes, you know, have a beer at like 9 a.m. Yeah. Like, it's beautiful. And I feel the same way. Let's let's get some fireworks on like Monday starting at like 9.30. That, that's the kind of perfect timing for me. So if everyone could just adapt to that, yeah. I, I would really appreciate that. Tell the teams out east. That's really the key. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's talk Brendan Hagel really let's do quickly. It. First of all, the Canucks were once upon a time when Brandon Hagel was tearing it up for the Red Deer Rebels. There were definitely scouts that, that pushed and recommended that the club be among those that courted him. Um, ultimately, management was not sold and, and decided not to. Um, pretty good return, though, for a CHL overager, right? The Canucks just signed um, Arshdeep Baines. Similar path, right? Guy lit it up in his overage season as a CHLer and has joined the Canucks organization. Obviously, a long path for for Baines to carve out to get to get to Hagel's level, but you know that's the sort of asset development story that matters for teams because the Chicago Blackhawks just netted two firsts for a guy who a year ago was in the American League. 
It's not just that they developed him. It's not just that they acquired him, though. The key part of this deal, why it makes sense, why it costs so much for Tampa to acquire him, is that the Blackhawks signed him to a steal of a contract, except that it was a pretty risky contract for a guy with a very shallow NHL track record at the time that they did it. Three years times 1.5. He's got two years remaining after this one at $1.5 million. The Chicago, sorry, the Tampa Bay Lightning win cups because they manage the cap best. Period. Period. Yes, they find talent in middle rounds. Yes, they have Stamkos and Hedman. They've done a lot of other things right too. But their greatest competitive advantage over the rest of the league is just a mastery of understanding cap mechanics and how to build a team in a hard cap league and how to manage players in a hard cap league. Hagel is this year's Coleman or Gaudreau. Not stylistically, because Coleman and Gaudreau had that edge to their game, but in terms of what his contract is. This is the contract for Brandon Hagel that, you know, he's a he's a middle six forward. He's a top six forward, maybe, right? But at $1.5 million, he's massive surplus value because he can potentially drive a, a second or third line for you. At 1.5, not just this year, not just as the Tampa Bay Lightning look to three-peat, but should they fall short the year after or the year after, right? As as more and more of their players become expensive and as they have to make harder and harder decisions, including one this offseason on Andres Palat, for the next two years, they have a fixed cost, highly effective middle six forward at 1.5 million. That is tremendous. The way to think of it is he is, to Tampa Bay potentially, what Nick Benino was to Pittsburgh. He was the right player, but not just the right player, the right player at the right time in their career. And at the right price, salary cap-wise. That's what I mean. Yeah. At the right time in their career in terms of what they represent on a cap hit, right? The key is to have Brett Connolly, right? For 750k, the way the Washington Capitals did when they won the cup, not Brett Connolly at 3.5 million, the way that the Florida Panthers did a year later. Right? That is how you win. And I think there's a lot of echoes here that we can extrapolate. Even though Brandon Hagel is a far inferior player at a far more team friendly clip than JT Miller, I think there's a ton of things to unpack. The first is, is that. When the Tampa Bay Lightning traded JT Miller originally to Vancouver, it was because he was filling that role at too high a price for their cap structure, especially with Vasilevsky's extension beginning to kick in, right? So they sh- sh- chopped JT Miller to Vancouver for a good return and then found Blake Coleman, who fit within their cap structure better for a shorter period of time. Blake Coleman's not the player that JT Miller is, but he made way more sense for that team because one was 1.9 and one was 5.25, and that's that gap was everything to the Tampa Bay Lightning. That's their whole fourth line in terms of cap space, right? That's the first thing to keep in mind, right? This is a team that knows about timing. The second thing, this is a two-firsts return. Now, they're both trade-downs. They're trading from the first to the fourth round, the, the Tampa Bay Lightning, basically, right? So they're, they're trade-downs. It's not a pure – it's a pick swap. It's not a pure just gave up a first-rounder. They got something back. The Lightning, obviously, 
you know, ritualistically light their first round picks on fire anyway in terms of who they select. You know, Slater Cuckoo, uh, Anthony D'Angelo, Brett Connolly, like on and on down the list. The the Lightning actually are far worse at selecting in the first round than they are at selecting later on in the draft, it seems. So perhaps that's part of their calculus. But they've traded, they've done two trade downs, two first round pick trade downs. The reason, right, why that makes sense for them is again about the about the timing of the player oh sorry sorry no i was talking about the price is this a window i'm curious to get your thoughts on it i'm curious to get our listeners thoughts on this is this a window into the value that a team friendly deal with term remaining which is what jt miller has now but he won't after this weekend possesses like is this a window into what you can get when you have a guy who solves a team's needs for multiple seasons and do the Canucks miss that opportunity uh in the very likely overwhelmingly likely event that they go through this weekend and and remain uh keep JT Miller on the roster past Monday at noon it definitely is a window into that now having said that I don't think the drop-off from JT Miller's value this weekend to JT Miller's value at the draft is as significant as the drop off for Brandon Hagel would be if he was a pending UFA this year, right? Yeah. Like that the gap is much lesser in JT Miller's case and it might even be it might even be minuscule because JT Miller is such a high-end player and there might be other teams more interested in him at the draft, right? So I think you're right. In the abstract, it absolutely is a lesson in that. I'm not sure that specifically applies to the JT Miller situation. What I will say is when when Frank Saravelli, again, regular contributor who you hear on Sportsnet 650 on deadline day, uh, broke the full return that Chicago was getting for Hagel from Tampa Bay, right? Two first-round picks, two young roster players uh, in Tyler Radish and Boris Kachuk. You know, the immediate reaction, what are they doing? That's such an overpay. How could they do this? Here's the thing, though. Value is the, – the value a player has is different for every team, right? And, Drance, as you laid out, they desperately need cheap, controllable players, right? So that makes Brandon Hagel more valuable for them. The Tampa Bay Lightning also have a chance to do something that hasn't been done in almost 40 years. They have a chance to win three Stanley Cups in a row. So their future first-round picks are much less important to them than they would be to almost any other team in the league. So, of course, they're going to go all in and try to improve their team as much as they possibly can at this deadline. They have a chance to not just win the Stanley Cup, to, but to be a, a you know a tried-and-true, stone-cold, no-doubt-about-it dynasty in NHL history, to be a historic team in NHL history. So, I don't think it's an overpay at all. I think it's an extremely savvy, smart move by the Tampa Bay Lightning. But the lesson there is that value matters based on where you are as a team based on the individual context of your team and that's why you know it's not enough to just look at Tyler Mott and say well he's a good player why would you trade a good player because even good players have different values to different teams and if Tyler Mott's value is greater to another team that has a legitimate shot at the cup right now that's why you make the deal as the Canucks your value of a player to your team is not the same for every team across the league it matters based on where you are as a team as you try to win the Stanley Cup. Yeah, and, and I think I think you're right on JT Miller that like the question is, does the problem that he could solve for a team that benefits from the term on it remaining on his deal outweigh the benefit to his cost, right? To to his acquisition cost of uh increased demand 
come the offseason, right? That's sort of the way to look at it. And and that's why I think some of the teams that have been linked to him, specifically the Rangers, right, who have Ryan Strom expiring, so they could definitely use a high-end centerman for, for this year and next, and the Colorado Avalanche, who have Nazem Kadri expiring. You know, I think that's why those two teams have been front and center, right? There's a reason for them to potentially pay a premium, just like the Tampa Bay Lightning did for Brandon Hagel as a result of the contractual need, the situational need that a, that a player in Miller's circumstance would uh, would fill. Um, and then the last part, the last part of the Miller, um, of the Miller chatter that I that I want to go through here with uh, with Hagel. Miller right now is on the contract that you can win with. That's that's a key thing to keep in mind. Miller's next deal becomes a bit of a more complicated proposition, and there's been a lot of chatter about what that could look like. And I brought up Nazem Kadri as as a comparable uh, yesterday, right? That was yesterday. I believe so, yeah. The days are all blending together for me, Jamie, in the lead-up to the trade deadline. But, you know, I think think it's really important to note that right now, the deal that Miller's on, he's like your perfect fourth-best forward or third-best forward on a cup team. He's in the, the, like, perfect William Nylander, Andrej Palat, Nazem Kadri, Vincent Trocek. Like, look around the league, and you've got contenders on exactly this type of deal. Uh, Sam Bennett in, in Florida. Uh, that's the that's the deal where he's like a perfect fit for you as a contender. The moment he signs a deal that looks like Zabinijad's or or Hurdles or um, you know a lower end version of Barkov's, then what you need from him becomes a level of form that he hasn't consistently delivered through his NHL career, and that's when it gets dicey. And it's when he gets to be thirty three, thirty two, and and you begin to wonder if you're getting the same player that you pay for up front. And again, that's why the value of JT Miller for arguably the remainder of this year, but certainly for next year, I would say is greater to a bunch of those teams that you just listed than it is going to be for the Canucks because of that value his deal represents to a cup contending team. Uh, C&J in the work truck says the time to win a cup with Miller is this year and next year. It happens. Let him go and build for the future. Echoing what you're saying, right? Like this is the go. This would be the go time with JT Miller and his deal if the Canucks were in a better position uh, to pursue it. I just don't think they are right now. Uh, well, again, I'm not expecting a JT Miller trade. And the whole debate about would you get more for him at this deadline or at the draft, I can kind of be convinced either way. I can see strong Me arguments too. either way, which kind of means I don't have a big problem with going either direction. I, I, I don't Agreed. think there's a clear right or wrong answer there. I mean, it's honestly, it's like this. It's like selling versus not at this deadline. I don't have a big problem with the Canucks holding their big guns and saying, you know, to to the room, you guys have earned a right to see how far you can take this, but there's some business we have to attend to. And for me, that's Mott and Halak. Like, Mott and Halak are the ones, and, and I'm not going to be critical of this organization if they can't do the Halak deal, because it's so complicated. It's a three-dimensional deal. There's this bonus issue to sort through. The goalie market is very eccentric to, to work through, especially at the deadline. So, again, I'm not going to be critical of the organization if they can't find a way out of that straitjacket that they, that they inherited. But I do think finding a way to do that, plus either extending or trading Mott. And, of course, if you're extending him, part of the plan there is that in the offseason you're going to offload money and significant money, uh, which isn't easy, but it's doable, right? I, I mean, that's that's a key part of that. But so long as, you know, I won't even have an, an, a huge issue with the Canucks' approach to the deadline. If they extend Mott, deal Halak, I'll say, hey, that made sense. You know, I'm not I'm not an absolutist like sell sell sell. That's not 
you know, I'm not putting out the uh, wavy arm inflatable and, and saying like that, you know, <laughs> everything must go. Yeah, no, cut, cut rate no. prices. Like no. that, that's not what I'm suggesting the Canucks should do. I just think you you can't keep bleeding value in UFA. You have to break that chain. And Tyler Mott's like a relatively low leverage player to do that with. Like it has to be. It has to be this way, uh, especially for a team who is twice as likely to be fifth in the Pacific than they are to be in the playoffs. Uh, earlier today, speaking of trading players with term uh, and team control left on their deals, Elliot Friedman, of course, Sportsnet, Hockey Night in Canada, 32 Thoughts Insider, was on with Jeff Merrick uh, and mentioned that the Canucks and the LA Kings have been talking about a potential deal recently. I think the Kings and the Canucks have been in touch uh, off and on quite a bit over the last little while. Um, I, I do think that uh, Garland is a name that's that's come up between the two teams. I, I don't know if it's going to happen or not. Um, I've heard L.A. is not crazy about giving up their first rounder this year. Um, and I think that draft picks are things that the Canucks really want. I don't know if it's going to be a match, but I, I think that they have talked. So we'll, we'll see where it goes. And, and a couple of people had kind of hinted to me that it had – picked up over the last day or so. I mean, we'll see. I, I do think L.A. is motivated to do something. Their, their players have shown they deserve it. Uh, they're, they're, they've got staying power. They're in good position. And, you know, with the Arvidsson injury and a couple of the other injuries they have, I, mm. I think they want to bolster their depth a bit. So I, I, do think, I do think L.A. is a team that's motivated to try to do something, and the, and the Canucks are one of the teams they're talking to. So that's Elliot Friedman reporting that there might be interest in Connor Garland from the LA Kings. Of course, nothing imminent, not saying a deal will be done, but just a potential move to keep your eye on. And the interesting thing to me there, Drancer, is obviously, you know, you hear a player like Connor Garland who I, I think he's, he seems like a player that there are very divisive opinions around the NHL, but I'm in the camp of he's valuable. He's very valuable on that deal. He's going to give you surplus value. If the Canucks consider trading him, they should be expecting a pretty significant return uh, back from wherever he goes. So the interesting thing, first of all, is, one, you look at what the LA Kings could theoretically give up, and they have a host of an asset which, you know, you can understand why the Canucks might be interested in it, right? Young, right-handed defensemen. They've got a lot of those in their system, on the roster, in the system. So that's interesting right there. Okay, you can see why a deal might make sense. The other thing is, if you just think, we're talking about, you know, not just the specifics of what the Canucks are going to do by the deadline, but kind of what those moves are going to tell us about the direction of the team. Trading Connor Garland. And again, you know, Friedman's not saying it's imminent. He's not saying it's definitely going to happen, but it's a possibility. If that did go down and they trade Connor Garland to a divisional rival, right? A young player who still has term left on his deal. So you think he's going to be in LA for a while yet. They trade him to a divisional rival while they're still, you know, in this playoff race, even though their chances took a big hit last night, for futures, to me, that is a very, very hopeful sign that the team is finally willing to kind of keep the future view in mind, right? If you're willing to make that deal, that is so different, so different than anything we've seen from this team over the last decade, right? And and again, almost more than, oh, did they get, you know, uh, whoever, Jersey or Faber or whatever, whatever, pick your defenseman that you love. Almost beyond that, it would just be so such a striking change of direction for the Canucks to be willing to take a step back in season when you're still trying to chase the playoffs, help out a division rival, 
because you think you're getting adequate value back for the future. And again, if a move like that does go down, we can debate whether they did get value back. But that would just be a fascinating and I think very, very telling change of direction for the team if it, if something like that does go down. Yeah, you're right. It would be. And the the thing with the thing with Garland though is Garland is good value and he's the right age for you to build around. You know, at, at the end of the yep. day, at the end of the day, I do think the move that yeah, additionally hasn't played power play. Right? Like there's a lot you could do with Garland to build up his value further. I don't think this is peak value for Connor Garland, right? I, I think there's a way to do better if you hold him for eight another eighteen months, you know, give him the type of minutes that he hasn't really gotten consistently this year. Like we've seen what he's done with Miller and Pearson just the last two games. You know, what I mean, what what could he do? With 45 games of PP1 time and first unit, uh, sorry, first unit power play time plus first line minutes, right? I mean, I'd be curious to see it because he's been such a productive per minute scorer for Vancouver, but he's still, you know, not a not a straight line burner. He's not a big guy. Um, I think there's some questions about within the industry about can he win enough battles to produce in the playoffs, right? There's a chance that you could address an awful lot of those concerns over the course of the next two years. So while I see the argument and agree with the general thrust for me, Garland is, is kind of more attractive to me as a hold, as opposed to, you know, a a player like JT, who I think is at the absolute apex of his value. Like if you're looking to, if you're looking to sell the NFT before people realize it's just a JPEG, (laughs) (laughs) Connor Garland's not the uh, not the ape with eyewear you want to move, you know. For me, Connor Garland. <laughs> I mean, Con- I'm, you I know what I'm saying? Know. No, right? no, I absolutely do. Yeah. No, like buy low, sell high. For me, Connor Garland falls into the category of, and we have people texting in. Don't trade Garland. He's effective. He's a great. He's a really good player, right? He's awesome. a really, really good player, and I like his contract. He falls into the. If somebody completely knocks your socks off, then you consider the deal, right? Otherwise, as you said, hold, go into the offseason. And, you know, as much as there's a desire for fireworks by Monday, we've said it time and again, the Canucks do have the luxury of waiting on almost all of their significant potential trade assets. Connor Garland is one of those. So it's not a, oh, they have to move Connor Garland by the deadline situation at all. It's a, if a team really blows you away with what they're willing to uh, give you for Connor Garland, then maybe you do have to consider it. The other thing I do find interesting, and we don't have the audio, but elsewhere when he was talking to Merrick today, you know, Friedman was saying, Colorado, really eager to do something. Boston, really eager to do something at forward. LA, really eager to do something at forward. Everything we're hearing is that Claude Giroux is going to be a Florida Panther. It's just a matter of time, right? So that is kind of the clear cut. Now that Tomas Hurdle is signed and JT Miller is, by all accounts, staying with the Canucks, Claude Giroux is the clear cut number one forward on the trade market. He's going to Florida. That leaves, according to Elliot Friedman, a lot of other teams that would like to do something in their top six or add a significant forward with not a lot of significant forwards necessarily left on the market, right? You look at Raquel and Anaheim, but after that... You know, Nick Paul, maybe? So that dynamic is something that I could see if the Canucks are willing to at least explore and talk to teams about Garland and Besser. If there are no typical, classic UFA top six rentals left for these teams that are 
want in a mood to be aggressive, in a mood to really stock the cupboards going into the playoff races. Does that open up a, a chance for the Canucks to get significant value back for, again, a guy like Garland or a guy like Besser that they don't have to deal? So that that is a dynamic that I am keeping an eye on. Uh, over this weekend as we go into the final day of the trade deadline on Monday. Well, and it's going to be fascinating because we'll be on the air for three hours breaking it all down. So. Let's go! And we'll have Yannick, and we'll have Sat, and we'll have a ball. So we it's hope everyone fantastic. joins us, and we hope everyone has a good weekend and enjoys a, a, a couple of Canucks games that really shouldn't be that impactful in terms of charting a future direction from the organization, and yet that's the chatter in the marketplace. We will see. It remains to be seen. It's going to be a fascinating day. And it's the kind of no thing where what. even no moves is going to be interesting. right? And I'm not just saying that to uh, convince myself that we'll have something to talk no, about. No, it's the first pressure point for it this management group. Like We've seen change, right? And we've seen the fruits of that change behind the bench. And we've really liked it. right? Bruce Boudreaux's been more than a breath of fresh air. He's, you know, I, I, like I think he's accomplished something that basically no other coach could have accomplished you know uh, there's a lot of chatter in this market like a popular take these days is if only they'd changed coaches earlier but it's not sufficient to have changed coaches you needed bruce you needed boudreaux um now all of a sudden we're going to have this moment this actual pressure point for a management group that has staffed up signed an interesting player in in archdeep baines but basically been pretty quiet transactionally speaking and all of a sudden come monday Regardless of whether there's fireworks or not, we will have seen how they navigate a crucial pressure point and will be able to opine on, chart, review, analyze what we've learned about the Rutherford era and whether he's decided to put something of a, of a significant stamp on this organization or, or not, and whether or not that's what this club needs to accomplish the goal. It is going to be a blast. Make sure you're with us all day here on Sportsnet 650. Drance and myself will be on from 10 to 1. Tune in. The trade deadline is on Monday. The People Show with Bick and Randeep is up next. On your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.